Hi guys, and welcome back to Grow North, the podcast that brings you growth stories from business leaders, brought to you by Six and Flow, the growth agency. I'm Ross Mangini, and on today's growth story, we welcome Michael Litt, co-founder and CEO of Vidyard. Vidyard is an online video platform for businesses, which allows them to increase leads, accelerate their pipeline, and delight their customers all through the use of video. Like all the companies that we've had previously on this podcast, Vidyard have seen amazing growth. Founded in 2010, they're now over 200 people, have successfully been through Y Combinator, and they've raised over $60 million in funding. They now stream over 50 million videos a day using their platform. So the first thing I wanted to speak with Michael about is, of course, video. I really wanted to understand the power of video and how we should be using video in our lives. So, Michael, why is video so powerful? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, and obviously, kind of the the it's core to to what we do and why we exist. Mm. One of the things we're seeing um, at a really high level is that the buyer and the seller in an organization uh, is obviously changing just with respect to their their demographic. Uh, and the next generation, millennials and Gen Zs, you know, were the the groups that either grew up and went into the workplace not knowing what it would be to work without access to the internet. Uh, and in the case of the Generation Z, which is born in 1995 plus, mm. not knowing what it's like to work without uh, a mobile device and mobile internet. And of course, in consumer land and the way these individuals are, are connecting and communicating with their peers, you know, they're, they're texting, they're likely using their, their phone less than the previous generations, um, and they're constantly re- taking photos and recording videos um, and using those videos to communicate with, you know, Snapchat, Instagram stories, Facebook, et cetera. Yep. Uh, and so as these people come into, you know, B2B land, what they encounter is these industries that primarily communicate using email and, and voice over the phone. And so there's this medium which is totally being lost, which is obviously a visual medium in video that can expose you know, the cool parts of your brand to your customers that expect video to be part of that journey. Because again, they're coming from consumer land where video is a big part of everything they do. Yeah. And, and it's this, it's kind of this, this third format that, that businesses just haven't been using. Um, and they need to start using because this next generation expects to sell and be sold to uh, with video. And so it's very, very important um, because it's, it's, it's behaviorally expected. And, and again, this is because of Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube, etc., and so companies need to embrace the content format and need to build a compelling strategy about it, and, and that's really what we support. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, with that, then I mean, because I've looked through some of your your talks, and you've talked about the um, the psychology behind it as well. So it'd be good just to kind of hear more about why you think that is the case that it's that it is taking over. Like like you said, Snapchat and Instagram goes a long way because that just becomes commonplace now, but. What is it? What what are kind of the underlying reasons as to why people are engaging with video more than other mediums? Yeah, and I, you know, there's there's a lot of different types of video, right? Um, across the funnel, if you will, if we're talking about kind of a sales and marketing use case, mm. you know, there's everything from what we'd call top of funnel content, which you know you could liken to a Super Bowl commercial, 
And a lot of people only watch the Super Bowl for, for what they see on TV ads. And these are creative assets that, you know, strike chords at like the core of your being and make you actually feel an emotional connection to a brand. And it is very, very, very difficult to do that with a blog post. Um, yeah. And it's impossible to do that with, with a phone call because there's no way of, of really doing kind of one to many in that medium. And so the psychology of video is, is in the end really built around storytelling. Um, and whether it's that Super Bowl commercial at the top of the funnel or whether that's a personal video sent from a sales rep or a support rep to a customer, now all of a sudden there's a connection that can be made. There's a story that can be told. There's ums and ahs. It's way more genuine. It's not this polished, you know, automated email coming out from uh, an automated service somewhere. It's a real connection point. And I think as businesses automate more and more of their processes, thanks to advancements in machine learning and AI, the role for humans is really to be more human. Yep. And again, because video can, can connect psychologically and tell these incredibly passionate and emotional stories that can relate to brands, that's, that's really what, what humans can, can do for each other uh, to instill that sense of, of belonging and, um, and connection through, through storytelling. And I mean, as, a, as humans, like we're raised on storytelling, right? Like from when you're little and your parents read storybooks to you to, you know, way back, you know, a million years ago when you sat around a campfire and, and regaled the tales of, of ancestors of the past. Mm. Um, video is just kind of the, the, the current version of that and businesses can use it really effectively. Yeah. Like you say, I mean, the, the narratives of stories are, are inbuilt in us, aren't they, from from the youngest of ages. I mean, I want to come back to what you said then about ums and ahs, because I think when a lot of people think of video, they actually do think of polished, you know, that they, they probably don't think of what you just thought then, which is uh, um, a blog post is polished, but a, but a video is not because it has the ums and ahs. And I think a lot of people, I imagine a lot of people when they're kind of speaking with you guys and looking to create video and understand how they can create video, is that like one of the biggest barriers they're trying to overcome is like, how do we not not make polished material but actually understand that it's the the non-polished videos that actually are kind of resonating the most obviously in some specific yeah. circumstances yeah no absolutely I, I mean i think you know the, at the very top of your funnel right again thinking about the super bowl commercial you know you want something that that is polished right yeah. that's representing your and that's the first time that's like somebody walking in the front door of your office Right. You want them to have, uh, you know, a smiling receptionist there that's greeting them and providing a really uh, welcoming and professional experience. Mm. But as you peel back the layers of that experience, right, and, and let's say you're buying something from that company. At the end of the day, it's, it's two humans interacting and those humans are going to be representations of their brand, but they're humans. And humans are not perfect and humans are in awe and humans tell story and, and the most effective meetings, as we know, are in-person meetings, right? And in-person yeah. meetings are not going to be, you know, perfect. Uh, there's going to be ums and ahs. There's going to be awkward silences. There's going to be breaks. There's going to be disagreements. And video is a tool you can use to create that in an asynchronous way. And we always say video is the next best thing to being there in person. And so once you've established that connection, you know, and, and had somebody go through the top of funnel, process in your company and they're starting to interact with with the sales rep 
you know, your options in most businesses are, are email or phone calls um, or video calls. What, we, what we're offering is a way of having an asynchronous video communication. So leaving a video in someone's inbox. Um, and so between the calls or between the emails, there's a, there's a touch point where you can show them something cool. Yeah. Um, you can show them a customer story. You could show them a screen capture of what they could accomplish. You could, you know, show them a award that your, your child won at, at school that day. Um, just to create a little more empathy, a little more compassion. Again, the ums and ahs are just so so natural to who we are. Um, and you know, back to this concept of storytelling and and, and creating this this really nice human connection. Um, video is really one of the only ways to to, to truly do that. And so it, it doesn't need to be perfect. Yeah, yeah. Because I draw so many comparisons with audio and podcasting, and a lot of people feel like it needs to be this highly polished, edited production and in some case it does like you said the super bowl commercial commercial version of podcasting you probably do want it to be polished however it's the kind of human to human element that comes in natural conversations it is the ums and ahs the bits that that, res- that like i said before that actually resonate with people because they are more more human they're more they're more inviting should we talk about elon musk's podcast with joe rogan i yeah. mean that's like <laughs> That's one of the best examples of, I mean, obviously it had some negative fallout for Elon. <laughs> I think he'll be fine. Um, yeah, <laughs> I do. But, you know, that was that was an opportunity to learn the man behind all these incredible businesses in an informal way and understand the way he thinks and his motivations. Um, and that was such a powerful, powerful, powerful experience and all of you know, Joe Rogan's podcasts are that way with these incredibly famous people. And and I think his power as a storyteller and as a podcaster is to pull that out of his, um, um, uh, the people that he brings on the yeah, show. Yeah. And so to your point, that kind of informality and that real organic human to human nature is super powerful. So you can take that to video as well and succeed in your business in very informal sense. And the other thing I think, which is important is, is business is becoming less formal in general, right? Yeah. Like you walk around most offices, you know, I go to New York for business and, and I'm not wearing a suit and tie. Um, in New York, I don't wear jeans, but that's the only difference in Silicon Valley. You know, I wear jeans. Um, <laughs> it's and, interesting. Really. And I think that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the difference between New York. It's jeans. It's jeans versus slacks. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't want to call them pants because I know pants pants are something different for you than they are for me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, like, and, and I think video is a, is a way of creating that just like podcasting is. And so, you know, be human and don't be afraid to be human because I think that's why, you know, people will follow you. That's why they'll buy your software um, and that's why they'll connect. Yeah. How do you see that video different than to imagery? Because um, as you were talking about that imperfections and things, one thing that was coming up to me is that, um, for example, social platforms, Instagram is just highly produced, edited, you know, and you can, I guess, show a different version of yourself. And you said that, um, you know, business is now becoming more informal and, and sort of letting people into their environment. Do you think video, again, is is another way that, that shows that authenticity, that naturalness? Because I guess it's harder. I mean, you can you can definitely produce a, a video which looks different to reality. Um, but in terms of the ones you're talking about, when it's kind of like face to camera and things like that, it's it's very real, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I think, I, I think people are kind of getting, getting a little sick of, of the perfection that is often displayed on social media, right? Because I think it, it makes people feel a little depressed uh, and sad when, when everyone's lives are almost projected in this, in this perfect way. Um, you know, I think Instagram stories um, is a far more compelling uh, feature of that platform for showing, you know, what's really and truly going on in someone's life because it's, it's hard to make that, you know, perfect image um, when you're recording a, a vertical video on your phone. Um, and so, you know, I think even those platforms still have outlets of, of creative production around video, which, which again are real and much more organic. Mm. Um, and how cool is it that, you know, you, you have this device in your pocket that you can pull out and, and create a story and an experience. I mean, the feature is called stories for a reason, yeah. right? um, which goes back to the, the, the point of this whole conversation. So yeah, I think polished content again has a has a role to play um, at the front door of your business, whether it's top of your funnel, someone walking in in the front door and, and meeting a receptionist, um, whatever that looks like. But as you develop these relationships, more organic, more real is always going to be better. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. I um, I want to ask you about the the very first on the on the homepage of Vidyard. You go into that, and of course, there's a play button, and as you click play. The lady down there tells you that the most powerful call to action around is the play button. And I just wanted to, I f first of all found that really interesting. I, I agree with that. I wondered if you had any stats or, or anything else to kind of expand on just how powerful that call to action is. Because like you said, it goes into your emails and things like that. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, there's there's obviously lots and lots of ways of, getting people to click the play button, right? And so we can talk about personalization in a, in a second because I think that's a big part of this. But in the end of the day, you know, back to the psychology of people, you know, wanting to be told stories, um, wanting to learn, wanting to be educated, you know, the, the vast majority of, I, I guess a good example is my wife and I are, are planning a, a renovation and we want to do a really creative renovation. We want to stick to a fairly tight budget um, we want to produce content along uh, around it and, and, and share our learnings. Uh -huh. uh, and the way we're learning how to do stuff that I have no idea I've never been exposed to uh, is generally via YouTube. Yeah. And so there's a habit that's been developed in this generation of, of again, buyers and, and consumers, which is to seek out video instruction. Um, and so if you're coming to a website and you're interested in what they do, yeah, you could click around and look at all the marketing speak, or you could click play and lean back, put your headphones on and, and listen to a minute and a half demonstration of, of what that company does. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth a heck of a lot more. And so in that minute and a half, two minute video, you're going to learn kind of soup to nuts what that business is. And it's going to answer some questions and allow you to move further down the funnel much more easily. So I think that's why the play button is, again, such a compelling call to action. It's the promise of a story. It's the promise of, of learning. Um, when you think about now, the next level of that is personalization. So if I sent you an email and you open that email and inside the email, there was an animated GIF of me mm -hmm. waving at you, 
holding up a whiteboard that says Ross on it. Yeah. <clears throat> what is the likelihood? And, and we've never met before, right? Would you I'd, click that? I'd click it. I would click it. Yeah. yeah. Because obviously, like, if it was just a wall of text, you'd probably think, okay, this is an automated email, right? Yeah, it says my name in it, but merge tags have been around since like the beginning of the internet. Um, this is somebody somewhere in the world that's obviously took the time to like record a video for me and write my name on this whiteboard. Yeah. So the a, a person's first name is is actually like um, psych, a psychological trigger for them. And so what you'll notice is really good salespeople, um, you know, really big influencers. When they talk to you, they'll constantly say your yeah. name. Um, and that engages you because, you know, you're, you're always taught to respond to your name. And so that's why that kind of one-to-one video-based email communication is so effective because, wow, I'm going to click that. And then once I click it, I'm being told a story and I'm connecting with a human. It's not just automated robot brand. There's there's humans that work there that are are trying to influence me. Um, Now, there is a way to actually take that that method from one-to-one to 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 one-to-many. Now... We see about an eight to ten x increase on average um, on response rates when using those types of videos in email, and so that's the stat that that you were kind of speaking to. Yeah. And so we've actually built a technology that can automate the process of injecting that name into the thumbnail of the video. Um, we call that personalized video. Um, it's done at scale. Um, and it's done by actually uh, editing the personalization into the content you produce in the first place. That's cool. And then pointing that content at a database. Um, so we can actually say Ross is clicking play. So dynamically insert Ross's name into the content or things we know about Ross. So yeah. it could be the terms of your, of your cell phone bill um, <laughs> if that information exists in a database. And so now there's a way of making the content experiential for just you which is going to have a much higher attention span and a much higher conversion rate because it's super relevant to your needs at that time. Yeah. Um, and so again, the, the conversion rates on click through are really high, but the conversion rates on response and follow through and connections and meetings booked are also much higher as well because we're, we're, we're creating that psychological trigger of, of, of belonging through story. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, when you were saying that I was thinking about, uh, an experience I've had when someone sent me a video and it was, um, it was buying a car. So I'd, I'd inquired about a car and they said, yeah, it's great. We'll book, we'll book you in for a, you know, to come and actually see it. But then like literally 20 minutes later, I get sent this video and the guy's walking around. He's like, here you go, Ross, here's the front. Here's the, you know, he's opening, he's opening everything up. And it's just, it's, it was a very impressive sales demo because you know, it was, it was nice to get it. It was completely personalized. Um, and I imagine a great use of their time. I didn't actually buy, buy the car <laughs> in the end, but the guy did a very good job, but I just wonder what the kind of longevity of that is. And, and I, maybe we haven't got the answer for it yet. Maybe you do, but like, like it's going to have a, a diminishing return. Well, no, I, I understand that, you know, if it comes up and there's a whiteboard, it says Ross on it, I'm clicking on it. Cause it's so, you know, it's interesting to me now, but just like email, was interesting and now we get a thousand of them a day what this is what i mean about you might not be able to predict it but what happens when i start getting 10 of those a day do, do i do i start losing its kind of does it start to lose its value when everyone if that happens everyone's sending me personalized rossi videos 
Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question. Something that we obviously think a lot about. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk uh, said something that resonated to me um, probably about a year ago, which was his original mailing list for his his wine company mm-hmm. uh, had a a two hundred thousand person uh, email distribution list, and the open rate was like ninety five percent. Yeah. And fast forward that to today, the open rate on probably a much larger email list, but like content marketers and email marketers are celebrating like low single digit percentage open rates as being a success. And so, you know, obviously um, it's less successful. Now, I think one of the things that's missed in that analysis of data is like those 200,000 respondents back in the day were really, really interested in buying wine. And now that mailing list has probably grown to 20 million people. And I'm sure a lot of that data was purchased. And I'm sure the vast majority of the people have never even experienced the brand before, right? And they're using it as a process of funneling people in versus communicating to people that have already selected. And so I do believe that open rates are diminishing. But when you get an email from a company that you actually want to get an email from, you probably open it, right? And so... I think we've abused the privilege, um, but we're trying to get people to engage with our content that just aren't interested in, in doing it. So when I think about it from that perspective, you know, I believe there's always going to be a place for right content, right time, right person. And that should be the goal of yeah. every email marketer. It shouldn't be just about mass distribution. And in that world, email will always work and video and email will always work. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And actually, I can think again to myself, there are there are certain brands that when you receive the email, you do always open because you, you actually are genuinely interested. And there's other ones that you just haven't been bothered to click unsubscribe yet, you know? And so, you know, that's heavily skewing the figures, lowly. Yeah, you know, it's just there's someone at that company that's trying to play the volume game mm-hmm. and not really truly understanding, you know, why their customers or prospective customers might care. And And I think that is the next generation of email marketing and video marketing, right? Is is right time, right place, right message, right person. Right time, right place, right message, right person. The impact of getting this right is huge. In today's market where attention is at an all time low, and there's so many people and businesses like yours competing for the same customers, personalizing your message to ensure it really speaks to your customer has moved from a nice to have to an absolute essential. Blanket approaches to sales and marketing, like throwing enough mud at the wall and seeing what sticks, are becoming less and less effective, particularly in B2B. And so creative approaches like recording a personal video are seeing high open and engagement rates, as Michael highlighted. The video opportunity is definitely an exciting one, especially if you've never tried something like this before. But I think the underlying principle is what matters more here. People expect you to understand them, empathize with them, and reach them using their language. Your job is to work out how. Now, I wanted to speak with Michael about the future the future of video and the future of work. It all comes down to human device interaction, right? Now we're starting to see augmented reality. There's a really cool company around the corner from us called North 
they've made a pair of, of uh, glasses, smart glasses that have an intuitive heads up display and the glasses look good. Um, the, the, the projector technology is, is all integrated in a really nice way. Um, and I always think about how video is going to be consumed in that experience, right? It's going to be like basically printed on your retina by lasers. And in that world, you know, video can exist in a completely different paradigm where vertical, horizontal, et cetera, can be kind of integrated throughout. And who knows, maybe we're watching circular video in that way based on the limitation of that projection technology. Who knows? The reality is that the next generation beyond that is probably cerebral implant where you're not even watching video. You're actually like going to be having a virtual experience yeah. where there are no bounds to the, the, the letterbox in which you consume the content. It's all around you. You move your head, you know, you exist in, you know, you're watching a concert in this experience. You're standing in the audience and you can look behind you, you can look forward, sound quality is great. You're, you're having a completely different experience and that's the direction we're ultimately going. Um, and that's why I'm excited at things like 360 video and VR um, because I think they can actually really augment the way we work. Yeah. I mean, how much do you, how much do you personally look towards the future like that? Cause again, on one of the talks I've previously watched you give, you know, you got, you got particularly excited about augmented, about um, virtual reality actually at the time. And I know that you've, you have actually invested as well, haven't you? Into some um, yeah, VR companies. For sure. So how much, how much time yeah. do you spend actually looking forward at those future years? Um, you know, as you know, the, the one of the, one of the greatest things about my job is 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 looking into the future. Now, of course, you look too far into the future and start to build your business that way, um, you're going <laughs> to run into being too early. Exactly. Uh, and so, but you know, thinking about the future of work um, is very interesting because you know maybe it's some maybe it's a problem I'm going to be solving five, ten, fifteen years from now. Mm. Um, and it's kind of nice seeing what that trajectory looks like. So the reason I'm excited about VR uh, is because, you know, I'm sitting in a room right now. We're having this conversation. Um, I'm in Waterloo. I don't actually know where you are. Where are you uh, in the world? Manchester. <laughs> so we're in the UK, awesome. So Manchester, right? We're not, we don't, we don't see each other. Um, and so we're limited, you know, in this interaction because it's, it's primarily based on voice. In a VR world, we could be sitting in the same room having this conversation and playing off of each other's body language, how much more dynamic would that be to the listeners of this podcast, yeah. right? We're gesturing, we're getting excited, you know, I'm jumping up, writing on the whiteboard, who knows? Next thing is, you know, I look out at, at the team here and they're all working at desks and I know exactly how much every square footage of space they're working at costs. I know the cost of the desk, I know the cost of the ergonomic assessment and the cost of the equipment. You know, a, a build out of an office space like we have here is very, very expensive. And, and independently connected VR technology, that is VR tech that doesn't need to be tethered to a computer, is now way, way, way cheaper than the cost of like a MacBook. And then when you add in the cost per square footage of office space and the cost of the desk and the cost of food and all those other things, all of a sudden you realize if we were able to have a fully virtual workforce that I could connect personally or, or in person through VR technologies, it'd be way cheaper It'd be way more productive. And not only that, people wouldn't need to live in cities anymore because, you know, you wouldn't need to live in proximity to your workplace. You could live anywhere in the world. So cost of living would decrease. We'd have less clustering issues, less food issues, less transportation issues. You know, the, the disruptions to 
the VR-enabled workplace, live anywhere you want, um, work anywhere you want, is really exciting. The other one is like persons with disabilities that can't get into offices. Now all of a sudden they have an avenue of, of interacting in a way where there may have been limitations previously. Yeah, People of different languages, right? You know, we, we have talent restrictions. This whole industry does. Maybe there's someone in Japan who doesn't speak English, but has a specific skill set we need and wants to work with our business. In a VR-enabled workplace, everything they say could be automatically translated into the language of the recipient. There's so many cool things about the future of this technology, which I can get excited about um, <laughs> if, again, it patches on and, and, and these, these workplace um, things start to grab. So we have a VR setup at the office here just because we want people to experience it and get engaged with it and, and, and feel it um, because maybe it can it can become a part of our product roadmap in a small way that takes a step towards that reality. Yeah. Man, it is crazy, isn't it, when you, when you say just how much that's going to affect. And exciting, like you say. I mean, would you, it's been a bit of an impossible question, but that reality that you just said then, how far off that do you think we are? You know, if I was starting a new company, if I was starting, it's a good question. If I was starting a new company now, I would think long and hard about being 100% remote and not having a physical office space um, and buying everybody the new Oculus headset and using alt space as a meeting, a meeting area, right? So we yeah. do, we do an all hands Tuesday stand up with everybody. So everybody would be required to put their VR headset on and be in this virtual meeting room once a week where I would stand amongst everybody and present the company update, present anything they needed to know, answer questions, do Q&A. And when that was over, everybody would take their VR headset off and they'd be in the comfort of their space and the comfort of their home, wherever they wanted to live. And that's a reality that already exists today and is possible to do today. And we would have less restrictions in, in space. We wouldn't have people complaining about, you know, the height of their desks. There's all sorts of things that, that we could, we could, we could already be, be go away with. So, you know, I, I think there's aspects of it that are already here. I don't know too many companies that are doing that with VR, but I do know a lot of companies that are fully remote and are using things like zoom to, to connect yeah. in this in-person because again video is the next best thing to being there in person i think vr is that next best thing to being there in person beyond video itself so yeah that's my thought yeah interesting it is and then you know it's going to be amazing isn't it to see how it actually pans out because you mentioned all the positive stuff there's there's also negative potential negative stuff which comes off the back of that and just well just changes in general and how people behave you know, how that affects their health, just everything. It's going to be a fascinating one <laughs> to see how it plays yeah, out. But, you know, the cool thing about that strategy is, is the average commute is, I think, north of an hour now each way. And so everybody spends two hours a day commuting, which is probably responsible for the boom in podcasting, as we were discussing earlier. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, but imagine if you could have that time back. Instead of driving a car, which is relatively dangerous, you know, you could go for a run or you could spend that extra two hours with your family or spend that extra two hours working on something you really need to get done. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I want to um, ask you about the, the beginnings of Vidyard and um, really how, where, where did it start from? Because uh, am I right in saying that originally it was a video uh, service company that you were looking to build? 
Yeah. Yeah. We started a production agency called Redwoods Media. Yeah. And the idea was that we would produce videos to help companies explain their products, their services on their website. Uh, and this was a fairly novel idea at the time. It was kind of 2009. Uh-huh. Um, so just kind of coming out of, of, of the last, you know, major economic recession. Um, and people were looking for more cost-effective ways of training and, and reducing travel time. And, and so we kind of fit into this nice niche. We didn't do any talking head or video or film with, with people in it. It was all kind of animated explainers. Uh, right. And that allowed us to work all over the world. Uh, and so we started that business. It was going really well. And our customers started asking us how they could put those videos on their website. And the options at the time were really YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, the challenges were they were branded players. You know, when you look at YouTube, their whole business model is built on getting people from the embedded location back to back YouTube.com to YouTube. yeah. where they can <laughs> as much content as possible. You know, day becomes night. You're watching dogs riding skateboards. Um, we've all been there before, right? Yeah. And so our, 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 companies that we work for uh, basically wanted us to, to build a solution that uh, would keep people on their website, that would be on brand, wouldn't be distracting. So we did that. And, and they started paying us a small monthly subscription fee. And then they started saying, you know, it'd be really cool to know, or I'd love to justify to my boss, you know, the return on investment of this video um, so that we can do more because I believe it's working. But the data I have to justify that is really is really kind of my own instinct in talking to customers and users. And, you know, we can see we had a reduction in support tickets. We can see we've had an influx of new leads. I think it's because of the video. It's the only thing we changed. But how do we justify that? And we said, well, you know what? We actually could potentially track who was watching those videos. Mm-hmm. Would that data be useful to you? And, and it was a resounding yes. And so we started adding these premium features and slowly realized, wow, there was a really amazing opportunity to build a technology platform around helping people understand who was watching their videos and helping justify that ROI. And oh my gosh, that data could be integrated into all these other things like Salesforce, Marketo, HubSpot, et cetera. Let's go do that. And, and let's not be distracted by content production because you know we can partner with content production companies and help these businesses build videos more easily. And uh, that's when we effectively became Vidyard. And we applied to a program in Silicon Valley called Y Combinator. They liked what they saw, they funded us, and off we went. Now, if you're from the UK like me, but also take a keen interest in American business, you've probably heard of Y Combinator. Vidyard successfully completed the Y Combinator process. And I wanted to speak to Michael and understand exactly what that was like. What's it like going through that process? And what was the benefit that it had, not just to Vidyard, but on himself personally? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly hard to get into. Um, so I consider myself very fortunate to have had the experience. Mm. Um, and it's a program that's led by successful entrepreneurs that know what it takes and have built kind of frameworks and concepts and ideas for solving common problems that startups have. And the difference between YC and, and you know every other program that tries to mimic it is, is YC is truly, first and foremost, in my opinion, an investment program. They are not an accelerator or an incubator. 
And the difference is accelerators and incubators are often government financed and run by people that have never started a business before. Mm. Whereas YC is privately funded. The partners have a financial interest in seeing companies succeed. And so are much more brutal with respect to the feedback and advisory they give. There was a company in our batch that was working on a, a music service. Um, and, you know, there's so many music services at the time and, and they were really talented developers and they were also considering uh, building some software in the uh, fraud detection space. And I remember hearing PG, Paul Graham, say to these founders, you know, the reason why we fund 60 companies a batch is because we know many of them are going to fail. And so if you want to drive your business off of a cliff and go build this music startup, be my guest. And he stood up and he walked away. <laughs> and that company ended up building the fraud detection software. Right. And you know, is now a very successful Silicon Valley based company. And that's in, in that space. Um, I don't want to use their name because I don't know if they'd appreciate me telling the story given their, their profile now, <laughs> okay. but that's the type of, of thing YC does. And so, you know, in 20 minute meetings with the partners, you know, your problems are either trivialized um, to the point of, of quick solution and you move on to the next thing uh, and, or you are forced to focus in a way that you didn't really know you were capable of doing. And you're surrounded by all these like-minded individuals that are all going through the exact same thing. And every Tuesday you get together for dinner and you ask each other how it's going. And of course, everybody's business and, and you know, the production of their idea is going amazingly. Right. And it just makes you feel like you are so far behind. And so you leave that dinner knowing that I have got to get to work because <laughs> I want to be the most successful company in our batch even though, you know, everybody probably Everyone feels was saying it, yeah. <laughs> so there's, you know, they've, and they've gone even further down this path and, and gotten even better at instrumenting this programming. So, you know, it's, uh, it was a life-changing experience for me. I, I, I owe a lot to iCombinator. Really? So what were your, um, what were, what were some of your biggest growing pains then? You've obviously transitioned now into a software company. Um, you, you, you've come through the other side of Y Combinator. What, what were your growing pains if you could kind of summarize some of them Ooh, so many growing pains. <laughs> yeah or, or was it everything you know like one of the big things is we're north of well north of 200 people now and when you start a business you know you're you're in the weeds you're solving a problem and you are responsible for building the technology and you're responsible for the first few customers and, and the fundraise and but you need to scale that operation. And so you move from being a hands-on executor to a leader really, really, really quickly. Mm. And that's not really a well-understood part of, of starting a company because the difference is so stark, but you need to be able to do both, right? If you want to even get to the point of being a, a real business leader and a real CEO, you have to be able to build the product and, and execute at the earliest stages um, and vice versa. And so in that process, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of growing pains and failures and lessons learned. I mean, I've brought in executives that have been bad culture fits and, and, you know, done, you know, terrible things in, inside the organization and, and that have ultimately resulted in, in terminations you know, I've brought in executives that have been great fits culturally and, and executed well and allowed me to go off and focus on other things. 
um, but inevitably, you know, come to a period of time where they're no longer, you know, productive or effective and, and, and you have to make those, those hard decisions. Yeah. We've had, you know, kind of any number of, of, of challenges along the way and, and many lessons learned. And, and one of the things I love about, you know, my, my role as an investor advisor now is that I get to parlay uh, that experience to, to my founders and do it in a way that is, is fresh and relevant because I'm currently going through this. So I could get into detail on, on growing pains, but, you know, suffice to say there are many and we have failed more often than we have succeeded. Yeah. And in, in terms of the, how you analyze those and, and your kind of emotions towards those failures, is that, is that changed at all? Because, you know, this, there are, there are so many ups and downs, aren't there? It's like, when, how do you kind of, um, solidify, I guess, your approach towards, towards understanding that failure and then, uh, you know, continuing through that. Um, attitude towards failure, you know, has to change because it happens so frequently. I remember we had a customer contract that, um, was going to be massive. Um, like approaching a million dollars in ARR per year. Mm -hmm. And this was coming together at a time when it would have made us like insanely profitable and changed the trajectory of our business, allowed us to raise more money, allowed us to invest in certain areas of growth. Like it was just, it was going to be big. Yeah. And we were very, very confident in getting it. And so we're making decisions as if it was going to land. And of course it didn't come together. And so when something like that doesn't come together, um, you know, you have to completely change your direction and you have to think about the company and, and we didn't have a plan B or a plan C. Now those failures are expected. And because we have plan B, C through, you know, F, it doesn't really matter as long as we're learning from those failures and as long as they never happen twice. And so my, my approach to failure now is, is to celebrate it because at least we tried something, at least we put ourselves out there. And when we're not celebrating failure and we're not failing and we're afraid of failing, that's when we fall into this pit of status quo and incrementalism. And that's when our growth starts to stall. And so embracing those fuck ups for better, you know, use yeah. the word. And in fact, we're even having an event at our office uh, beginning of March called fuck up nights where I'm going to actually talk about some of these um, disaster. Sorry for swearing. No, that's I, I fine. <laughs> I apologize to the audience um, because you know I just want the company to continuous continuously know and, le and learn from those mistakes and know that I've made them continuously throughout. Um, I keep telling the company, you know, eighty percent of the stuff I've tried to do has has failed. The twenty percent that's been successful has been as successful as what you see today. But we're going to continue failing, and that is a okay. We've talked a lot about the power of video throughout this conversation. But one question you might have for yourself is, how does it work for my business? How can I incorporate video into what I do? There's a quote I really like from Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot. He said this in 2016. He said that 50% of your content should be video. Your audiences want to live inside a video. So stop hiring bloggers and start hiring producers. Because it isn't just that adoption for video is growing, it's that your customers are expecting video now. And that is a fundamental reason why you should absolutely be thinking about video and incorporating it into your offering. 
So I think the question to leave you with is how can you better use video to grow your business? Thanks for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please head over to iTunes, hit subscribe and leave us a review. It would mean loads. And again, this podcast was brought to you by Six and Flow, the growth agency. For more content and information on them, head over to sixandflow.com.